Hey, this is Adam Stachowiak, and you are listening to Brain Science from Changelog. Huge thanks to Fastly, Rollbar, and Linode for making Brain Science possible. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. I'm curious, Adam. I, I have a question for you today. I want to know, what is your first memory? Do you remember how old you were, where you were? What pictures or sounds are you able to recollect? No sounds, but it would have been before two and a half because my dad passed away. And my memory is the furthest one back that I can think of. And I've had other people agree that this could be a memory. So I've often wondered if it really is a true memory. And it's uh, my dad standing at the front door and he'd always drive me to work he'd always take me to work it was really funny and all he would really do is just pick me up put me in the car we'd go around the block he'd bring me back home and that was going to work with dad but my earliest memory was my my dad standing on the doorstep and uh and that's that's really wild to even think about I know. I love it. That that just makes me smile, like thinking <laughs> of those things, right? Because yeah. I think a lot of people might be curious about why they remember what and why one thing stands out from another and sort of how does this whole process of memory work? Does it just sort of happen? Is it happenstance? Or are there actual, you know, sort of ways our brain work to, yeah. to do this activity? What about you? What what's my earliest memory? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I mine is a very fond memory too. I um remember I think I was somewhere around the age of three and I remember this dress that I was wearing. And part of the reason I, I'm not sure if it's in my mind or like I just remember the sound and then we had a family picture and I was wearing this dress. <laughs> but I was running down this hallway, um, and my dress had bells on it, so I could remember the sound of the bells. And I he- was holding my dad's hands and doing this motion we call skin the cat. So I like run up his legs with my feet while I hold his hands and flip over. Mm. So I would just do that while he was like talking to other friends or whatever. But it was just, yeah, makes me smile too. Well, you asked about sounds, and I'm wondering if maybe the reason why your memory got stuck because that's kind of what we think of, like, why did our memory stick? Because you didn't intentionally probably try to remember that Mm-mm. your whole life, and yet it's so vivid. Mm-hmm. Was it maybe the sounds? And in my case, I didn't really have any sounds that I recalled. It was more of a, really more or less a visual scenario, a scene that sort of just like is on a loop. When I think about the memory, it's on a loop. Yeah. Well, so memory is this interesting process because first off, you need some attention and and. I don't think we know yet why for one person that early memory stands out as opposed to another. I I would think it would look like just sort of converging factors. But the process by which we remember what we say is 
encoding, storage, and retrieval. So what I have to do is actually encode the information. I have to like get it in my brain. And then it's in this process of what we call working memory, which is generally only about 30 seconds long, that my brain goes, am I going to consolidate that and bank it? Am I going to store that for the future? Or am I going to let it go? And then the final part is then I can retrieve it. So it's interesting working with people who complain about challenges with memory because it can be for a myriad of reasons that people struggle with it. And one could just be attention. This is why a lot of people who have like ADHD struggle sometimes with remembering things. And it's very simple. It's really hard to encode anything that you weren't paying attention to. (laughs) So there's nothing to retrieve. It's not there. What's the the age at which you generally begin to remember. Like we just recalled something in like the twos and threes. Mm -hmm. I I understand that babies begin to form their memories or long-term memories at around the age of 18 months. So Mm -hmm. when do we really start to really remember and what's sort of like generally the earliest people remember? So generally, a lot of people tend to remember about age five. But like all things, there's variability in that. And, you know, as we talk through this, I think that'll make more sense for people why they remember one thing over another. But stress is definitely a moderating factor in the memory process. Like some people, when they talk, we're going to talk about this today, but, but learning is involved in the process of memory. So in order for people to learn, i.e. then remember, you want to think of it like an inverted U, that either like too low a stress, like too low of having really sort of any excitation or too high of stress is going to influence our ability to encode and then store or bank new information. Yeah. I have a hypothesis and I'm not a doctor, as you know. But I'm wondering if maybe it's uh, how how it works at an early age to remember is because there's less traffic or just less congestion. Like we're older now, obviously we're adults. And so our minds have so many things competing. Yeah. At that young age, all you have is awareness. So it's a little easier maybe to bank them and maybe it's specific ones and they get retained unintentionally. You know, like you, you don't consciously – Mm-hmm. you know, commit them in the memory. It's something else that sort of happens because there's just less traffic. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things is that there are less neural connections earlier in life. So your brain is really building these sort of highways in your brain for data to be linked to other data. As we get older, this is why it's harder to change, so to speak, because those neural networks, otherwise known as cow paths, <laughs> are really more ingrained. Yeah. So it's just harder to change them because it's just like this is always the way that we go. And I think that's why it's valuable to have these conversations because if you aren't aware that there's actual routes you've developed, then you might not be apt to look at how you could build new routes or look at other data points to change them. Have you seen the movie Inside Out? Yes, I have. So I almost actually pointed up an idea for a show called Memory According to Inside Out or something to that degree, you know, because that show, that movie was uh, – I'm curious of your opinion on it, but my opinion is that it seemed very accurate. It is really good. I love that movie. So listeners, if you haven't seen it, go check it out because I think it's a really good file in 
people's brain to understand the role of emotions as it relates to memory and that memories are constructed. And the different emotions also, they're also part of, you know, sadness and joy are part of creating a memory. So mm-hmm. joy alone doesn't make a memory, sadness as well, or disgust mm-hmm. and anger mm-hmm. and what yeah. was the other one? Icky? What was it? Yeah, disgust. <laughs> so there's... there. Fear? You forgot fear? Fear. Oh, yes, fear. That's what I forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the I love key it. ingredient. It, it is. And I just think the character depictions are so good around these emotions. But so if you can imagine somewhat like a T-chart, okay, and that with memory, there's what we reference as declarative memory, otherwise known as sort of explicit memory. And then on the other side, we have non-declarative, implicit memory. Okay. okay, And so these involve different parts of the brain, which is how they're, you know, right? The brain is all systems, so they're interwoven. But declarative memory is generally in the medial temporal lobe, like structures within that part of the brain. And declarative memory is what we talk about with what we've learned, like general facts and knowledge, world knowledge. It's not necessarily subject to context or personal relevance. So I could say like the capital of Washington is Olympia or the imaginary line between the northern and southern parts of the world is the equator. That's semantic memory. So it's just like things I I go to school to learn. Mm -hmm. It's also declarative. So this declarative memory, I should say, also involves a consciousness. Like I I go to my own Dewey Decimal System library and I retrieve it and I pull it out. So experiences are part of this declarative memory. Okay. So episodes of our life. So what we both just referenced are episodic memories. And so they're contextual and it's time locked. The interesting thing with that is that, you know, when we retrieve them, you know, they they're changing because I'm pulling them up real time. And so this is why people can have sort of debates or challenge memories, so to speak. But on the other side of that chart, we have non-declarative memory, that implicit, which is mostly unconscious. And so we've talked about habit formation. If you can think of both associative learning and non-associative learning. So imagine how... I pair things that don't necessarily go together. I associate, you know, oh, when I listen to this song, I go run or I work on this type of project. I clean my house in this order of operations. It's very much procedures, okay? And it can also be more of this reflexive response. So think of this like even trauma as well. I can be... I can have had a traumatic experience and my brain banks it and I may or may not be aware of why my body is then reacting. You know, some people have a lot of sort of negative thoughts or feelings around clowns. And interestingly enough, that was a memory earlier in one's life. However, it can have more of this implicit reaction that says clowns are bad or scary or overwhelming, so I don't go see clowns. Right. (laughs) Right? But so implicit memory, these things can actually affect our choices in the day-to-day without our awareness. So this memory, the connection, I suppose, of choices to memory is really interesting. Like you make choices, sometimes even based on memories that you're not really sure that you, not so much not sure that you have them, but they're sort of like in your subconscious and they come out 
in this way, like with clowns, you might be around a clown and not recall, recall this trauma you had early in your life. Suddenly your heartbeat is increased. You, maybe you got a sweaty brow or, you know, you get mm -hmm. cold. Something, something's going on that's abnormal. Right. And you're like, why? I don't, right. you know, you have this fear. Maybe you don't know you have the fear, but something mm -hmm. in your life at some point said clowns are bad. And suddenly when you're around clowns now, right, you're, you're uh, sweating and anxious. <laughs> yeah. And so you can see how these, you know, can both be going on at the same time. I mean, maybe we think about it like the analogy of an iceberg right. in that explicit memory is what I see above the water, the tip of the iceberg, but then beneath it is more of this implicit memory and the things I'm not necessarily using conscious effort to recall because it's like, this is the way to work we go. Yeah. What do you say then uh, for rando memory pops into my head today. Like I'm just sitting here working, whatever, whatever, uh, boom, memory of my mom. Yeah. You know, I think about, you know, Bob Seger for some reason, cause that's something that she loved to listen to, you know, yeah. some weird rando memory just in my brain. You know, I, I would say that there was probably something else in terms of the information that was traveling through your brain that, that prompted that retrieval. Bear in mind, right, we're more apt to remember things that we rehearse. So the more often I run that play in my mind, the more often that play is going to be run. It could be you remember whenever you go to this one restaurant, that time you got food poisoning, right? Yeah. Or you could remember this one time you participated in a sport or wrote, you know, had an experience with someone you know, that was really aversive and you're like, I just don't like that setting or that environment or whatever. We can have feelings about what we've been through that then influence the way in which we respond in the present moment. Right. Fear. Yeah. Dictating yeah. your choices. Right. Right. And this is why recognizing sort of, hey, I got stimulated, like, oh, I'm afraid. And then going, okay, so now what? What do I do if I feel that feeling? Is that reminding me of something that was in the past that's triggering me, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Or is that actually a live event? And that's really what, what even therapy is all about, is like people get to this place of stuckness and they might not know why, or they think that like it everything looks okay, but their body is still reacting in some sort of way that doesn't that doesn't go together. They always say you need to process this. Yeah. And that's kind of what that is, right? You process, you know, maybe even in time, this memory, this event, this trauma, you know, it's not happening now. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. when we recall memory, we have autobiographical memory. So we're not, there's some, I suppose, and you could probably describe this better than I can, but you have a memory and you think somehow it's happening right now. Yeah. And you're reacting as if it's right now, but really the memory was in the past. Right. And this is why recognizing and differentiating the past from the present is helpful and why it isn't helpful to use denial as a coping strategy. Right. And saying, well, it shouldn't bother me. Like that clown should not be disturbing to me. But you can actually ironically empathize with yourself or be compassionate right. and go, I understand why when I was five and I didn't know what to expect and this weird looking person in all this makeup and big hair with big feet and I didn't know how to organize that information, 
with the framework that I had for my myself and my world that it felt intrusive or overwhelming. And so that isn't true today. Like one, I'm not five years old. So I can run interference with that and now create a different file, so to speak, in my mind. It's almost like remastering a memory. Yeah. It's similar to like, so I'll, I'll be more specific. So you listen to music and there's old albums from back in the day. Yeah. They remastered them in like new audio quality for today's current systems, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's kind of revisiting a memory and remastering it so that it's, and maybe it's not a one-to-one perfect analogy, but the point is, is that you kind of go back to it and kind of re-examine its, uh, you know, its effect on you. Mm-hmm. You know, so someone who has this issue with clowns, if they didn't take the time to process that and go back and say, well, this happened to me at five years old and that's the reason why I feel that way. Now, present day, the way they feel around clowns can be different because they understand where the pain or trauma or feelings come from because they know the origin. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because as much as we're talking about memory, I want people to get at that the primary part of the brain that's responsible for memory is what we call the hippocampus. I always think of a hippo. Yeah. Right. Every time. And that's where I store things. Well, that hippocampus is part of our limbic system, which is responsible for a lot of emotional processing and reasoning. So it would make sense that high emotions, no matter what they are, positive or negative, would play a role in influencing what we remember. Yeah. And that's why going, okay, if I'm aware of these significant events that, like, be it too, I took in sensory data, senses being see, smell, touch, taste, or hear, that my brain is going to maybe implicitly store those. I'm going to bank those memories in a different way than I also would the emotion. And so then I have to look at, can I can these go together? Or how could I maybe resort, recatalog in my brain these experiences so that they don't create the same physiological response today that they may have last year, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, et cetera? I've been in, in therapy before, and uh, similar to what you're describing here, they they told me to, you know, kind of take these various things, and just, I'm going to summarize it without going through the whole therapy session, of course, but essentially to take these things and put them into my briefcase, my, my suitcase, and sort of like create a file for them. You know, mm-hmm. like they give me some instructions how to, you know, think about the things we had talked about, you know, revisiting these memories or revisiting these scenarios and helped me sort of refile and reform them and said, now you put them in here and they're sort of to the side and in this less uh, threatening way or something. I can't recall the exact scenario, but it was like, it was this idea of like packaging them up, you know, putting them in a specific place and with a specific emotion attached to them or lack thereof of any threat, et cetera. Like it was really interesting how it was like create a file. Right. Well, and I think that that's a really helpful way of describing the process. And so if you're aware that you have a file or that you don't have a file, it can influence how you respond to that. Like, I think a significant um, sort of event that many people have faced in some form or fashion would be cancer or health conditions, right? And that some people have a really big file because they've walked through it either with a loved one, someone they know, or they have no experience and all it is is the things that they've sort of, nuggets they've picked up along the way. 
Well, those things can form the file that then I associate this new information with that then creates a feeling, that then creates a response, and now I'm headed down a road that I didn't even know I was going down. So that awareness around how I'm sort of consolidating information or the framework within which I operate is the most critical thing. Because, right, like whatever sort of framework we use, I mean, you know, I think about it within the um, tech industry of you guys use a lot of different languages, right? Yeah. For designing things and and do you use the same language in different systems? No. Right. Because some they like to, obviously, <laughs> it's, it's nice to have similarity from front end to back end, for example, every language or framework has a, you know, significant use opportunity. You know, so that it wouldn't fit perfectly in every place and to try to make it happen wouldn't be good. Right. So with individuals like our listeners of going, hey, your memories actually influence you. Yeah. <laughs> in some form or fashion. Well, when you are at the, the opportunity to make a choice, what do you do? Well, this is why if we go back to that iceberg analogy. Right. That – recognizing sort of what you see. And this is why having that board of advisors so people close to you might give you alternative data or feedback that then you sort of put all of that together and go, okay, in light of X, Y, or Z, would this be the wise choice or the one that optimizes for what I'm optimizing around? Right. Because some people, you know, would go, oh, I had a really bad experience. And it doesn't have to be like big T traumatic to allow experiences to influence decisions. Like, for example, food poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> right? Think of how many people might have even gotten sick around the same time that they ate a certain food. And now they're like, oh, no, I never eat that. Oh, I won't. Yeah. Right? Well, sometimes it can be connected to what comes out. <laughs> which is a little TMI, but I have, a, so I have a memory very closely attached to being sick and I will never eat that food again. So it's right. like, it's very, you know, very near and dear, I suppose it's happened. Right. So that's rooted in your experience, right? And so you retrieve that. And if you were to eat that, your brain would be like, associations. Hey, yeah. Right. Here's your warning label. <laughs> Just even you, the smell of it reminds you of, you know, the disgust you had. It's like, yeah. right? I, yeah. I have a, a similar feeling, I, guess, I suppose, to, you know, I know at some point in our life we'll buy or potentially build a new house. Mm -hmm. And when we built our current house, it was, it could have just been the time frame and the fact mm -hmm. that our son wasn't, you know, very old. So it could have just been the time frame or the struggle mm -hmm. of the time frame of life. But my memory of building the house we're currently in was very hard. Yeah. You know, very difficult. So the next time we do it, it's like, I'm going to be very specific and very purposeful in deciding to even do it. I'm so glad you brought that up because what you're getting at, Adam, is the way in which learning is highly tethered into, connected to memory. Mm -hmm. And because I suspect there was significant emotions around the process, like it wasn't super simple, dare I say. It was harder than I thought. It was a lot more involved. It was like a second job. Yeah, you manage, you, I mean, you want to. It's a significant investment where you're going to spend the rest of, you know, potentially your life if it's your long term home, like, you know, twenty thirty year home, whatever it might be. But it's a very uh, important thing, 
And you want to pay attention to all the details. And if you're building it, you want to manage the process of building and ensure that it's met all of the things that you agreed to and is what you want to buy and all that good stuff. Right, right. So all of that experience played a role in what you learned and the information you consolidated or Mm -hmm. dare I say encoded and then stored for future use. So that when we're talking about what are you learning, you have to go, what is it that I'm paying attention to? What is it that my brain's storing? And maybe why is it storing that data over another piece of data? Uh, When you say that, do you mean perspective potentially? Because two people, same process, two different memories. Yeah. And my wife's memory aren't exactly, you know, she agrees it was hard, but I'm far more catastrophic about it than she is. You know, I'm like catastrophizing the scenario in many, many ways. And she's like, nah, that's not true. (laughs) You know what I mean? But we were both in the same place, same time. Right. Most times we were both, you know, at the job site, our home now, at the same time, experiencing the same words from the foreman or whatever. But our memories are very different. Sure. So hence what you learned or extrapolated from that differs. Yeah. And which would make you more prone to, to do it again or maybe less prone because of what you learned. And so, you know, really learning is this process by which we remember things for future use. And so it's interesting because I'm very fascinated about why something sticks for somebody at one point versus not another one. And really, you know, what we found is like effort actually plays a role in this consolidation process. Effort as in attention effort? Uh, Effort as in energy. Okay. So, for example, there is, and I, I'm not sure if I've referenced this research study before or not, but there was one where they looked at, had students, so kids, look at a computer screen. And one computer screen was really difficult to sort of make out what was on it. So the kids had to put forth more energy to figure out what was there versus it was super crisp and clear in terms of presentation format. So the group that had to work harder or put forth more effort was actually the one that retained more later on. So they remembered better because there was a certain degree of effort involved in it. Mm. I guess that could be correlated with commitment, right? If you're committed to something, right, it's sort of somewhat like effort. Mm -hmm. You're going to be mentally committed. You're going to have a different mental picture of whatever it is, differently than somebody who's not committed, who's not creating a mental picture prior to or preparing or planning. And, you know, it's it, the effort does really seem to to stick for me. Yeah, I would even offer one step further, maybe, or saying your level of investment. Yeah. That because not everybody has the same level of investment, because who cares about all the same things in the same way or same degree? Nobody. Nobody. No. Nobody. And really, that's what makes the world work. Ideally, if everybody does their individual part, <laughs> we can all work together. So for people to to recognize learning always involves some degree of energy and effort. And this is why, like, you know, when I think about technology, I used to be a lot better at memorizing phone numbers. And over the years with technology and what I call my external brain, i.e. my phone, I don't have to utilize memory in the same way. So I I mean, that's fine in a day-to-day 
basis, right? But what if I really needed to get a hold of somebody for some specific purpose, but I don't remember that number? Yeah, you can't do it. (laughs) Well, this is the challenge of like, sometimes easy isn't always better. Yeah. There's the flip side though, that some would would say that I'm being more efficient, uh, I guess, given certain uh, assurances that today's world offers. Right. Assuming the cloud doesn't go down, assuming that my iPhone has a charge, you know, what I mean, assuming all those things remain true, then why store the memory it could store for me instead so that I can reallocate and focus my brain on other things that seem to be more important? Yes. So that would be true in some ways, but also then maybe not for other people in other ways. But you're correct. It's a reallocation of resources Mm -hmm. and saying, I don't need to spend my cognitive resources or hold a huge file to remember phone numbers because I've got somewhere else that I can do it. Yeah. But so maybe you think about it in terms of, you know, again, what am I optimizing for? What do I care most about? And how am I putting forth effort? Like, your level of skill around all that you do professionally, right? The you you've switched from doing actual programming, development, et cetera, to talking about it and helping other people have access to other teachers that they can learn from, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a whole different skill set than what you were learning before. And so what you remember is likely different today because of what you're optimizing around. Right. Right? So maybe I don't want to allocate all of my resources in this one lane over here because it doesn't actually take me in the direction that I want to go. And that's why I'm not going to focus my my effort or attention in that way. And we all have that choice. Yeah, yeah. The The bad side, though, is, is when the phone dies or the cloud is gone, then you kind of are stuck, though, right? Yeah, but here's the other sort of negative consequence I would see is that when I look at and and really researchers when we say like what is it that that helps people do the best and survive in this world it really is this idea of resilience like I can bounce back and if everything is easy and I don't really have to work that hard guess what my experience is going to tell me life is about ease mhm so now every time I encounter encounter an obstacle or a challenge I might make inferences around that, be it around my capabilities or around the plausibility or possibility of something actually coming to pass. Got to pay attention, you know, make those <laughs> memories got to pay attention, you know, w- without without your attention on things, there's no memory going in. Yeah. And so for our listeners, I, I really just want them to take away that they can make choices around how they do different things. So this is why, like we've talked about attention being an allocation of resources and Mm -hmm. the competition involved in that to say, you know, what things are important to me to remember. And I think that it's going to be varied, you know, like you talked about your memory with your father and I talked about my memory with my father. I also am very deliberate around events and experiences with my children Mm. because I, you know, there's always this possibility of threat of loss, right? I'm not in charge of 
all the things that happen in life. And so I try to enhance my awareness of certain senses in, you know, day-to-day life. I might take a step back and just like try to take it all in so that my brain encodes that with a broader context for retrieval because that's what I value. I'm curious what the specifics are around that, but I'm assuming it might be like present and aware. Right? Like what matters now is what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And it takes awareness. So the idea of be present here and now mm-hmm. and right. be aware, awareness, attention, right? It would it would be it would be key or seem key in, you know, enjoying the moment and retaining some memory of it. Yeah. So Adam, what you're saying is my memory will improve as based upon my ability to pay attention. Yeah. You're right. And that's why recognizing this sense of encoding, I have to actually get the data in before I can provide an output because there's not going to be any retrieval to put back out there if I didn't encode it in the first place. So you guys talk about coding so many different things. What would it be like if you actually looked at yourself and started to be considerate of the way in which you're coding the framework of your mind and how you're doing your day-to-day life? You're really talking what we talked about in episode 11, which was competing for attention. And just this idea that I lost my thought. Hang in there. Because it was competitive. <laughs> it was around being distracted. And I was being distracted. Because something buzzed on my phone when I thought half a second about what I was thinking about. But it's exactly that, right? Like, if you want to learn and you have to pay attention, well, then it seems like you shouldn't be distracted. Right. Right. So you almost have to identify the opposite to understand the full spectrum of what you should do. Right. So to pay attention don't be distracted. Well, and for you, it's sort of looking for, and and when I say you, I mean you, the listener, that zone that is optimal for you to embed the information. So going, is there a time of day? Are there certain constraints or situations, environmental factors, like who's present, who's not? All of these things that would make me more apt to consolidate information so that I can bank it for future use. This is the challenge in, you know, trying to navigate ourselves in our world is that we're not always aware of all that's going on beneath the surface or all of the different systems at play in our brain throughout our days. But if I can offer an opportunity for change to our listeners, I would say, I want you to start to be more considerate around sort of prioritizing your attention around the things that you want to remember, because it can also change your response to hiccups throughout the day and going, you know what, I don't really want to give much of my energy to that because that doesn't really matter. And I don't really want to occupy brain space or storage space in my brain for future retrieval. I want to let that pass on by so that I can actually consolidate the things that I care most about that are going to provide the feeling that I want to have throughout my day, my weeks, and the years to come. 
All right, share your thoughts or any questions you have about memory and learning at changelaw.com slash brain science slash one four. This is episode 14. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. This is a huge help, by the way. Tweet about this show to your friends, blog about it, go into iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. If you use Overcast, favorite it. Word of mouth is still one of the best ways for podcasts to be discovered. Again, huge thanks to Fastly, Rollbar, and Linode for making this show possible. Our music for this podcast is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelaw.com slash master or go in your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. We have one feed to rule them all, get all of our shows, as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon.